Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I am Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Elleveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos, The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Today, we are going to be talking about the first 100 days the first 100 days of Joe Biden, but also the first 100 days of a post-president Donald Trump and his Republican Party. So it's going to be an interesting show. Carrie and I have been writing extensively on both those topics for the last 100 days. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to actually be each other's guests. We are, I would venture to say that that we, 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 we're pretty good on this issue. I think Carrie's <laughs> one of the best writers on the on the topic of the collapse <laughs> of the you. Republican Party. And so we, we every once in a while, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to sort of check in on ourselves and, and, and sort of plumb our own expertise on these issues. Next week, we'll get back to having some cool guests. But today, it's going to be us. Carrie, how are you doing? I am doing okay, hanging in there. I mean, excited to talk about... Biden's first 100 days, which I think have been pretty good, and the implosion of the Republican Party, which doesn't mean that it's non-existent or that it's not a problem or that, you know, that we don't have to worry about 2022 or 2024. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying unity is just a word for circular firing squad. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is. So we're going to start. Let's start with Joe Biden. And there is a sort of realization in the media world that a great way to kill your traffic to a story is to use the word Joe Biden in the headline. And reporters, media organizations have actually A-B tested with Biden without Biden. And the word Biden turns people off. If you look at our really? daily statistics, yes, out of the top 100 stories over the last month, only one had the word Joe Biden. Only one centered Joe Biden in the headline. And that, that was, was yours. And that was me talking about how wrong I was <laughs> about <laughs> Joe Biden. So and I guess it had an interesting hook. And, and this is actually a very interesting sort of notion because uh, there was an interview somewhere, Washington Post, I think, where a, a Democrat was interviewed and he said the best part about Joe Biden being president is I don't have to think about Joe Biden being president. And I I still, I don't know about you, Carrie, but I still have a little PTSD in the morning where I wake up thinking like what horrible thing happened overnight, just expecting some Twitter outburst from, uh, from Donald Trump. And and then it's actually nice things. I don't wake I don't wake up thinking that. I mean, I have trouble sleeping for other reasons, but that's not one of them. Thank goodness. I mean, seriously, I have felt like Trump, you know, de-Trumpified ever since Twitter yanked his platform. And, you know, I I I, I don't know. That could I mean Twitter said he would never be reinstated, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so much better without him. Sorry. Facebook is talking about potentially, or at least they have their 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 board. They have an appeals, yep. like a Supreme Court of Facebook that's going to be. Um, I got to say, 
he would do damage on Facebook, but Facebook's already a cesspool of disaster and trumped real power weirdly. And I still don't quite understand the dynamics, but really it was about Twitter. It was about dominating that, that political narrative. And, and, Oh my God, we're starting to talk about Donald Trump. Let's let's, (laughs) let's, let's save Donald Trump. Like we still want to like hate on Donald Trump, Uh, but talk about Joe Biden, which apparently is death for headlines. But Here's the thing about don't, Joe Biden that's very... Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere because this is going to be fun. <laughs> right. This is good. Don't turn us off just because we're talking Biden. We're talking, you know, we're talking massive potential historic changes, big structural change, as Senator Elizabeth Warren used to say. So, so stick with us. So, I mean, that's one of the interesting things, though. And, and I definitely have written about this and noted this, that Joe Biden clearly ran to the right of Elizabeth Warren, big structural change, and Bernie Sanders' revolution. And he sort of, at least in the primary election, this was before, you know, COVID, like, slammed hard, right? But at least during the the primary, which was 2019, he was very much the, let's go back to the Obama years, let's go back to a boring presidency, let's go back to normalcy. And, and if you looked at his body of work over 50 years, I mean, this is not a guy <laughs> who just showed up, right? I mean, this is had a track record and you saw he voted for the Iraq war. Not only did he vote for it, but he shepherded the war authorization in a committee he led at the time, right? He, he was the guy who pushed through the hated crime bill. Um, you go, I mean, he was a Senator from MBNA, right? Cause Delaware is headquarters to almost all the credit card companies, or at least was before consolidation. I don't, I don't know anymore. So he had a track when he talks about going back to what was normal, it was clear that there was a Joe Biden legacy that was very much about status quo. Right. And so you had the Warren Bernie wing agitating for structural change. And the Joe Biden side, I mean, Joe Biden himself won because black voters in South Carolina took a look at America took stock of our, our racism and our sexism as a nation and decided that getting rid of Donald Trump was too important to risk on a country that they did not trust. At the time, I respected the decision, but I did not agree with it. And I think when I wrote this piece, I was wrong. One of the key tenets was is those South, that South Carolina African-American community was right because Biden did not win by much. I mean, again, you can look at the electoral college vote and you could say, oh, he won by the you're same margin that Trump won. He did, you're saying he didn't win by much in the general election. He ended up, in a general he ended up sweeping, you know, after, yes. after four initial losses, he ended up sweeping the Democratic primary, basically. But yeah, I mean, and, you know. But there was a funny thing that happened in, in is that... Um, I mean, he didn't he did not win the general election by much. If you flip 80,000 votes, 70,000 votes in four states, Donald Trump is actually 40,000. If you're looking at the if. Yeah, it's really an election that ended up turning on 40,000. If you look at what uh, Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin. And that was enough. I think Nevada. you might need Nevada in there, too. But but maybe I'm wrong. I can't. That might might be true. But I think it was closer to 40. Anyways, it doesn't matter. It was close. A lot. It was close. Yeah. Yes. And. To think that the boring old white guy, as I kept 
talk describing him as and it still is because he's death on headlines apparently <laughs> but uh, this boring old white guy barely beat donald trump and republicans did not know how to run against him they couldn't get that that anger and and even now we just saw last week there was a poll that showed that voters think that uh, joe biden is more moderate than barack obama was and by every possible measure, there's no way you could say that Obama was more progressive, more leftist than Joe Biden has been. But clearly, race. Not not in office, not as president, right. for sure. Unbelievably, no. Yeah. And so, so if you if you had <laughs> if you had uh, Kamala Harris president or President Elizabeth Warren doing the exact same things that Joe Biden is doing, things would look a lot different now. The country yeah. would be like, is this socialism, right? Listen, but what, it's Uncle what, Joe. It's Uncle Joe. What, what I think one of uh, one of Joe Biden's strongest characteristics has turned out to be is his ability to be wrong and not worry about it. I, I've said this before. He is he is playing. You know, he's 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 working president as a guy who you know isn't uh, isn't worried at all about being wrong. Um, it's not the phrase that I'm looking for isn't coming to me, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is he's that- He's evolving um, though. Like I didn't think he could evolve. Yeah, no, he's absolutely evolved. But what this is what I'm saying. I mean, look, the energy isn't in, in what happened in the primary. The energy is what he's doing moving forward. And he has been willing on, on so many counts to say, you know, the times have changed. They call for something different than what I ran on, especially in the primary, because when he was running on the in the primary and, and started to win the primary, we were we were still in the just in the beginning throes of the pandemic and how it devastated the economy and the incredible need that that created among many people who were suffering and losing more than, you know, ultimate, you know, and not ultimately, but already having lost now more than 500 uh thousand Americans. I mean, you know, it just the the circumstances changed and he allowed the circumstances to change how he was going to govern. And I I just think that the energy is looking forward and not backward now because he he isn't whoever that was. That's not how he's governing in the primary. And actually, you know, a lot of that, I, I mean, I would I would say that a lot of the stuff he's doing now in terms of the COVID relief plan, which is obviously already passed and, and is being implemented, the infrastructure plan, um, even the family's plan, a lot of this stuff is stuff that he, he's, he ran on in the general, particularly the pandemic relief, direct payments, et cetera. So in many ways, he's executing more of what he said in the general election, but he's definitely not where he was in the primary. And, you know, we talked to Kathleen Friedel, this historian, many moons back. And, you know, this was before anyone seriously, I think, was talking about a potential FDR type presidency. Right. And that is something that seems to be coming up more and more. And I actually had people, some of our commenters sort of like, you know, in certain things, laugh at me and say, yeah, the FDR president, whatever. Well, I mean, I'm not saying he, he isn't there yet, but the fact that that potential is even being talked about, even exists, is just light years away from where we were 100 days ago when he stepped into office. So just for context, Iowa was at the very beginning of February 2020. And then South Carolina was, uh, no, New Hampshire was 
you know, two, three weeks later. And then South Carolina, I think was a week later at the very beginning of March, right? The first closure didn't happen in California till March 15. And that was the first time that anybody closed in the country, right? So the sort of defining contests, which were Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, all happened before anybody had any inkling that the entire, everything would change. And everything did change virtually overnight. And so at that point, you had, you had Bernie Sanders sort of like, you know, limp along for a while, but, but again, he saw the reality, he saw the pandemic, the importance of beating Donald Trump, and he, and he ceded to Joe Biden in a way that he refused to do so for Hillary Clinton. And it was for the best. It all worked out. And we were able to sort of move fairly quickly into the general election. Now, you're right that the pandemic changed everything. And so we had this weird political historical anomaly where the candidate actually ran in the middle during the primary and then ran to the opposite end to the left in a general election, you always have the opposite, right? You always, you know, you got to win the primary base and then you sort of got to appeal to broader America. He felt comfortable advocating for a more progressive agenda and solution than um, he would have clearly otherwise without the pandemic. And so he took that opportunity. None of us, I think, saw that coming. I don't think I trusted him. And, you know, and in fact, I think we've written about it, right, where he was talking about a two trillion dollar um, sort of relief bill. And we knew oh, it's all going to get whittled down in the end. It's going to be nine hundred million dollars because they want Republican votes. And then not a single Republican's going to vote for it. Like that was right. the playbook that we saw during the Obama years time and time again. And that's what we expected. And then he did that sort of shift, that narrative shift that is so revolutionary in American domestic politics here in, in the modern era, which is he redefined bipartisanship. That's, I believe, the single biggest contributor to where we are today and to what is becoming a very successful Biden presidency is he stopped, you know, it wasn't about what Mitch McConnell said was bipartisan because Mitch McConnell wielded at that like one of his strongest weapons against uh, President Obama was that Obama's desperate need for bipartisanship to bring people together with right. people who did not really have any interest. And he this saw is, that as a weakness. This is where this is where I say and and the phrase finally came to me. Biden is 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 being a president who's got nothing to prove. Right. He's not worried about proving bipartisanship. He's not worried. He's just trying to do what's right by the country. I mean, I honestly believe that and what he thinks is necessary and possible in this moment. And, you know, the the best thing that that Mitch McConnell ever did for us was, number one, he's kind of a one trick pony and his trick has gotten pretty old. Like everybody knows what they're doing. The other thing is, is that, and I don't want to go the trick? down the, Let, let's, let's, the, 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 the trick is we're going to obstruct, right? We're going to string yeah. you along. We're going to pound you over the head with you're not being bipartisan, blah, blah, blah. Then we're going to, then we're going to see if we can get whatever you're trying to do, either completely dead in the water or trimmed down to the point where it's not, you know, it's not half as effective as it ever could have been. And and you're going to you're going to have very little to show for it in the end. Right. For getting like, I don't know, one, two, maybe a handful of votes at best. Right. So you can call it bipartisan. So you could call the stimulus, the eight hundred billion dollar stimulus bill that Obama got through. Well, no, you couldn't. They actually didn't vote for that. They actually they actually just 
had them trim it down and then didn't vote for it anyways. So, but, you know, I mean, by, by being consistently obstructionist, consistently, we're never going to do anything consistently the party of no. And then the party that attacked the Capitol and then the party that, you know, wouldn't majority of which wouldn't vote to certify Joe Biden's election and the party that just became ridiculous in terms of, you know, how hypocritical it was on things like deficit spending and stuff like that. They've just become I mean, they just kind of freed up Democrats to be like, who are you people? Like, why are we even responding to you? And I think that's Joe Biden has taken full advantage of that. Well, you know, if, if these party leaders are going to be this ridiculous, then can I put through an agenda that actually is popular with two thirds or more of the country? And the answer to that question so far is yes. Now, the question is, how much more of it can he get through? And I will say, you know, I, I wrote this piece over the weekend and I said that that, you know, Biden was on the was within reach of historic greatness. And that was that in and of itself was just bizarro world compared to where we were a, a hundred days ago. But the question is whether or not he, he can actually get there. Right. And everybody said, well, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, it's over. And I, I just want to say, before, you know, just so I don't miss a chance to say this, I think he could still ch- achieve historic greatness and a shifting of the playing field Um, the economic playing field in particular, by getting most of what he wants in the American jobs plan and the American's family plan, or a lot of it through Congress without having to eliminate the filibuster. He just needs to get cinema and mansion on board. Now it's not going to be, you know, we already know, like if they manage to do this, it's not going to be a 28% tax rate for corporations the way Biden suggested it probably will end up at 25% because that's what Joe Manchin wants. But who cares at the moment if he can get a lot of those priorities through that will help so many people that will help bring back and rebuild the middle class that will lift so many people out of poverty and put them within reach of the middle class that I'm not concerned about 25 versus 28 percent. And that is possible without filibuster reform. I think that is still achievable. There's not a single voter that cares about whether the tax rate is 25 or 28 or whether the deficit is this hundred billion or that hundred billion. They don't care. They care. How is government helping me? And this is what's so uh, critical. You know, what's amazing to me is, is his ability to, to go, with that Republican support really flies in the face of both his um, primary campaign, but also his general campaign, because he kept talking about all the Republicans that he worked with in the Obama years. And now you would go and look at those Republicans and it'd be like Arlen Specter, who actually <laughs> turned into a Democrat, Olympia Snow, who's no longer in Congress, it was John McCain, who you know passed away. So the people that he supposedly worked with are not even there anymore. And, and it was a different Republican Party, an obstructionist Republican Party, but not as disciplined and scared as this one is today. And he never hinted, he never dog whistled that he, you know, would ever go at it alone. He was very adamant that he wanted to bring people together and be bipartisan. And no wink winks at us, no no sort of, you know, nodding glance to, to make us feel better. Like he sold it. And I don't know if he actually believed it at the time. 
because history suggests he didn't. <laughs> you know, history suggests he came in with the lessons he learned from the Obama years, having been on that front row seat to those negotiations. And uh, and it's like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to let them destroy my presidency and my party like they did then. And Obama actually had a 60 seat majority at one point, 59 after the Massachusetts special election. Biden has a 50 50 Senate with John with Joe Manchin, and he's still accomplishing what he is. And again, I think a big part of that is the fact that he's an old white guy. If it was sure. President Harris or President Warren, I think Joe Manchin would be ecstatic to obstruct that agenda. I don't think that, either of those two would have a chance. Right. That may that may that would may totally be true. But Obama also, you know, I mean, Obama had different considerations and he had different personal, you know, considerations and things he was trying to, you know, prove to the country, to himself, whatever. But he didn't go. He had the majorities to do. Look, they never did. They, they, they could have done a second reconciliation bill and they never did. They could have gone after trying to do more things by reconciliation and they never did. I mean, you know, Carrie, they were laughing at the idea that you could use budget reconciliation for the Affordable Care Act because we were writing about that extensively right. at the time. And people literally laughed at us saying, you guys don't know anything about how the Senate works. You need 60 votes. Yeah, right. No, no. no. So anyway, I mean, I, I, I am I just think that Joe Biden grew into this moment. Uh, and I think it's that simple. I don't think there's a moment where some, you know, a flip switched. Right. I don't think it's that type of thing. I think it's it's the pandemic got worse. The economy got worse. The Republican Party got more and more ridiculous and fringe. All, you know, throughout the entire time. And suddenly he's in a situation where I think, you know, he he he's willing. He's shown over and over again that he's willing to change. I mean, just look at the refugee cap, cap thing. Right. They right, came out like example. a few weeks ago and and they were like, well, we're only going to do what was it? Fifteen thousand. We're going to keep the refugee cap at fifteen thousand, which is where Trump left it. I think that's what it was. Yeah, it um, wasn't even let's keep it at that number. It's let's leave the Trump policy in place. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Like exactly. Let's leave worse. the Trump. And they were doing other things. And then, you know, there was a big uproar over that for, for very good reason. And within the same day, they sort of walked it back and said, look, we're, we're the only thing we're doing, we we're making some changes. We left that in place while we were reconsidering the policy. And then they came out, what was it, this morning, and said, we're going to move that to what they had originally said they would move it to, which was the cap, they're setting the refugee cap now at 62,500, I think. I mean, that's in a matter of weeks. And, and basically, they said, you know, th there have been instance after instance where they ha where the administration has put something out and, you know, it's not like super material to Joe Biden as a person. And the, will the White House is willing to go back and say, look, we're going to reconsider this and then come out with a more progressive policy that like never happened in the Obama no, administration no. ever. They would um, dig in. They would and dig in and it would take years and protests and, you know, lots of anti Obama like from the from the left in order to get anything progressive through the the Obama administration. And and, you know, that's just not what we're looking at here. And thank goodness, because it is it is past time what this midterm election is going to come down to is whether Joe Biden's 
redefinition of bipartisanship as putting through an agenda that most Americans agree with, right? Roughly two thirds of Americans over and over again agree with the the policies he's pushing forward and the pandemic relief that he's already passed. And it, the, the question is going to be, if you, if you do enough good things that the American people want, can you overcome voter suppre- suppression that Republicans are bound and determined to bring to the 2022 election? That's what we're going to look at. Absolutely. There, there's um, there's an interesting little dynamic that that's also arising that that uh, I think bears keeping an eye on. Uh, conservatives are starting to sort of realize that those of us on the left are really pleased with Joe Biden. So I, I've seen it on Fox News that, you know, because there was that narrative that Joe Biden is a puppet of AOC. And, you know, everybody laughed it off because that was so freaking stupid. And even today, that's freaking stupid. But what they're doing is they're, they're going, aha, AOC said something nice about Joe Biden. And so did Bernie Sanders, because both of them have basically said, wow, this is great so far. <laughs> right. Uh, Byron York, who's a conservative writer at the uh, columnist at The Examiner, which is a conservative newspaper, actually had a whole piece and he, he cited my, my uh, piece on I was wrong about Joe Biden. And he's like, aha, conservatives need to start making the case that Joe Biden actually isn't a moderate because all the polls still say people think he's a moderate and that he's actually this like radical socialist liberal. And I find that kind of hilarious, right? Because if you look at the policies that Joe Biden has passed, they all have 50 to 70% approval ratings, right? Right. So there, there's a possibility that they may very well say all those things that you like, that's socialism. And people may go, oh, socialism kind of <laughs> cool then. I, mean, I just how- think they're not going to think it's socialism. I think that yeah. people, you know, people can get scared into thinking when they're uncomfortable with something, when they don't agree with something, they're like, oh, that's socialist. But if they agree with something, something they want, like a $1,400 direct payment so they can put food on the table, that's not socialism to them. Right. What, that's what do they call it? Good government. <laughs> right. That's that. It's big government. <laughs> but no, I mean, seriously, I think it just... I think as long as what Democrats are pushing through are popular policies, I have a really hard time believing that the socialist label will stick. And the reason is, is because no, no one, I mean, maybe people on the far, far left think they're socialists, but the vast majority of the country doesn't believe that they're socialists at heart. And if they like something and agree with it, they're not going to think it's socialist, even if Republicans try to tell them it is because they're like, well, I agree with it and like it, and I'm not a socialist, and neither is Joe Biden. Well, who was it? Was it Congresswoman Boebert in Colorado that said that uh, universal pre-K was communist? <laughs> and then, yeah. You know who else had universal pre-kindergarten? The Soviet Union, right? The it's Soviet like- Union, yeah. Let's not educate <laughs> anyone. It's terrible. Education, you know, I mean, for a long time, the Republican take on – getting a four-year college degree or going to college was, was basically that that was bad news because then suddenly you became liberal. So they're, they're kind of anti-education to begin with. So yeah, I, wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put that in the past tense. I, I think right, that is still 
the case today. That's not right. So now they're just extending. We don't want pre-K either. They're just like they're trying. I mean, Joe Biden's trying to lengthen out, right? How much, how much, how affordable education is and the time frame from which people can be educated in an affordable way from pre-K all the way to, you know, two years of free community college and more help with a four-year degree, right? And right. he's trying to extend that out. If, if, if Republicans could, they would just keep dumbing down the masses, right? They would be like, no, pre K. You know, yeah. they would be like, well, maybe we'll just do K through eight. <laughs> I mean, like that's, that's what they, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they yeah. were like, let's just get rid of high school public education. I, I, they seriously, and what, what is stunning, I mean, maybe this is a good time to like take a turn, but like what is stunning is, the way that they have dumbed down their, you know, their, their, the Republican base, right? The way that they have fed them lies, fed them misinformation, fed them disinformation, denied climate change, gone anti-science, et cetera. All of that stuff is, has come back to haunt them because now the pitchforks are coming for them, right? That the, the, the base that they dumbed down, the base that they fed a bunch of toxic, you know, non-fact-based sludge to, right, is now just one big conspiracy bubble. And it can turn on anyone at any moment. And none of them want to be in the line of getting turned on. Yeah, it's a great time to make that shift over to Donald Trump's Republican Party, because I still don't understand how you have a one-term loser there's only there's only been three of those in the last 100 years. So that's like rarefied air of loserdom. Uh, so uh, he never won the popular vote. Right. So he actually lost both elections and, and it's Republicans advantage in in working the institutional levers of power in this country to take power via undemocratic means is the reason they have any power at this point from Congress all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and. So you have a loser who has been deplatformed. It's literally like he rants and raves at weddings at his at his resort, right? You know, to dozens of people. I mean, this is like the former leader of the free world, relegated to ranting like a lunatic at like yeah random people's weddings. Right, videos videos of Donald Trump just kind of randomly showing up in the middle of like a wedding or something that someone has had at Mar-a-Lago and him ranting about the 2020 election and how there was a lot of fraud and everybody knows it and, you know, all that stuff. And it's like the broken record of him over and over again about how he didn't lose. I mean, that's, that is what we're talking about. Right. And it's, and obviously Donald Trump got rid of any notion of ideology in the Republican party so much so that then he didn't even bother to field a platform in the 2020 Republican convention. They, they didn't even pretend to stand for anything beyond whatever Donald Trump thinks in that moment. And what's worse is, is this guy's a loser. He's, he's clearly losing um, national you know, attention because he, he just doesn't have the means to communicate. I was just looking at, the recent presidential polling and, and the 538 composite for Biden right now is 53% approval, 40% disapproval. Uh, Civics, which um, is our in-house data firm, has it actually tighter, has Biden 48% favorable, 46% unfavorable. But, 
even that is plus it's it's above you know more people are approve of joe biden than disapprove donald trump was never ever better than 43 53 43 percent approved 53 percent disapproved half of america always disapproved of donald trump his entire presidency and that's where he is today 42 55 42 approved 55 unfavorable views which, of donald trump can i just add something here a data point which i was looking at today so so that so abc news just pulled optimism for the next for the coming year among people and right now 64 percent, this roughly two-thirds right of the country is feeling optimistic about the year to come um, the last time that optimism even approached that level was in December of 2006 at 61%. Now, think about that. That was just after Democrats retook the House and Nancy Pelosi was on the cusp of becoming the first female speaker, right? But you mentioned that 42% who approve of Donald Trump. When he, when he was elected on the eve of 2016, just 42% of Americans felt optimistic about the country. In other words, the country overall didn't feel optimistic about where we were heading. And it's on the eve of something like that, right? That sheer pessimism that Donald Trump manages to get elected. And I think it's just so telling about, you know, everything, every piece of who he is and how he managed to, to get into office. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So you have this person who is deeply unpopular, incredibly polarizing, and has no proven ability to get his vote out when he is not on the ballot. Democrats won big in 2017, 18, 19, and the special election in Georgia in 20, the beginning of this year in 2021, right? When Trump is on the ballot, people show up. Like There's a whole phenomenon that now we know is very real of Trump-only voters, but he can't even turn them out. And I think that's what a lot of the Republicans are really, they look at that hungrily. Like, we want to get that, what, 72 million people who voted for Donald Trump? 74, I think, is what 74. it was. They want those people, even though they haven't turned out for anybody else. And Donald Trump hasn't shown any interest in party building. He's told people not to donate to Republicans or the Republican Party, just to him. He attacks John Boehner. Uh, Boehner. <laughs> he probably will attack John Boehner. Who's, who's, who, he would. Uh, his, he would happily do it. Yeah. So, uh, um, McCarthy, the current yeah. Republican leader in the House, obviously McConnell in the Senate. You know, he attacks, attacks, attacks his own party. He actually seems to have more fun attacking people like Republicans and black women are his favorite targets. Like that's what gets him up in the morning to to attack, which is why he really is. <laughs> failed to grasp onto Joe Biden. What a, what a reason to live. I get up. I get up in the morning to attack people and especially people of color and especially people who are women and especially anyone who's ever said a bad thing about me. That's why I wait. I mean, can you imagine? Oof, what a, oh, and, it's so gross. Anyway, then you have conservative media who, since there's no Republican ideology, there's no cohesive message. They can't even argue against infrastructure because a lot of what's in this bill, Donald Trump actually had supported back in his dozens of infrastructure weeks. And so they're all fixated on cancel culture, right? Let's, let's talk about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. And I don't know, they were talking about Snow White the other day. I don't know what's going on with Snow White. But the, that's right now seems to be what they, they want to focus on. And so you have a party, you have this clear 
sort of delineation between the parties now because Rep- Republicans haven't offered a single vote for key Democratic legislation. They're trying to take credit for a lot of it. Right. Republicans like, oh, get your restaurant bailout money, you know, that they voted against. Right. But there's going to be a very clear case in 2022 between the party that actually is delivering and is giving people money, actual money in their pockets, and the party that wants to say, no, we're here to, to protect taxes for the, the businesses that we hate anyway because, because they are pro-democracy. I mean, they're a, right now a logical mess. And not that they've ever been great on logic, but this is like next level this unity and discord in that Republican coalition. And that's why you don't have any cohesiveness between their media arm, the legislative arm, Donald Trump over there yelling into the void uh, and they're paying attention. I don't, I still carry, don't understand why they pay attention to Trump because they could have just ignored him and moved on. But, and but be it's fine. too late. It's too late for that. It's too late. They had that, they had that 48 hour window after January 6th when they, when you know, McCarthy said, oh, but Trump bears some responsibility and, and McConnell was, you know, headed in the direction of trying to to jam Trump. And then it just all switched. And what what amazes me, what amazes me is that they have decided to hand their party over. Now, I, I'm going to make a distinction in a second between how because I actually think that Trump is is, is losing his influence but the but Trump personally is, but the party is more is more a vic, or more um, beholden to Trumpism than it ever was, right? The party as a whole. But but what's amazing to me is that GOP leaders handed their their party over to Trumpism, tied it to Trump, who has never been interested in the Republican Party. He has never been interested. He is so much more focused on making the Liz Cheney's of the world pay because she won't spread his big lie on making Mitch, Mitch McConnell pay, you know, because he he at least hasn't spread his big lie. I mean, you know, about election fraud, of course, and the election supposedly being stolen when he can't pr- provide any evidence of that anywhere in 60 plus times to the courts, right to mm-hmm. the courthouse. So but it's just unbelievable to me that they would have like basically gifted the party to someone who could care less about who couldn't care less about the party. I mean, it's like it's crazy town what they've done. And and, you you know, Donald Trump has a he, he, he got a you know phone interview on Fox News the uh, last week, I think. And in that phone interview, he said, oh, you know, the. Uh, Republicans should get rid of Mitch McConnell, right? Now, Mitch McConnell isn't in immediate danger. He's just been reelected in his home state, and there's no one else who's really capable of leading that caucus right now. I mean, you know, people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, everyone just hates them. He, they're, they're, you know, so the, there's too much division, even within the own Senate caucus right now, to for anyone to challenge Mitch McConnell's leadership there. But he, but Donald Trump is more committed. I am certain of it to making Mitch McConnell pay than he is to to electing congressional majorities in the House or the Senate. And he would probably be very happy if he managed to doom the, the Senate majority, the Senate minority's chances, Senate Republicans' chances of retaking the majority and managed to get maybe a couple of like more, you know, right wing, you know, kind of flamethrowers into that Senate caucus to behead Mitch McConnell as leader. 
And then, you know, I think he fancies, he'll never say differently because he'll lose all influence if, if he does. I think he fancies the idea of then running for president in 2024. But he would happily have McConnell not retake the majority and have him dethrone as leader. And that would that's more, I guarantee you that's more important. Retribution is more important to him by far than the Republican Party, the success of the Republican Party and and the success of the nation, frankly. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and when you look at that Senate map, it really it's it's. It is the 2020 battleground states and 2024, right? It's Arizona, Florida, Wisconsin, Wisconsin Pennsylvania, North right? North, North Carolina, Carolina, Georgia. I mean, it, it is. It's you overlay it. It's the exact same states. And so, when if Republicans need to elect, there's not a lot of margin. These are going to be one, two point results, either one way or the other. I mean, we just resign. They're going to be dogfights. And so, if Donald Trump is meddling. For example, he has frozen the field in Georgia because he wants Herschel Walker to run in, in uh, Georgia. Now, who is Herschel Walker? He's an ex-football player in Texas who just happens to be a black person who supports Trump. And Trump being Trump thinks, oh, well, the Republican Raphael Warnock is black. Therefore, we need a black to also challenge him. And that's how we win. So, so let, you know, Georgia's a big state. I'm sure there are plenty of African-American black um, Georgians, <laughs> but that one said something nice about him on Fox News. Therefore, let's import him let's, from Texas to Georgia, where he probably knows nothing about Georgia. And uh, and that'll be, you know, the person we field. And this is going to be Trump's version of strategy in all these states. Right. And there is an opportunity there for us to to uh, have a little bit of a leg up. I mean, even if it's just one to two points because the wrong person is nominated can be a big factor in what is going to be an incredibly, incredibly tight election. But if we win the Senate, if we big, win bigger majorities, then we have things like not worrying about Joe Manchin every exactly. freaking vote. And exactly. then you create some breathing space, D.C. statehood. Exactly. The, the uh, house, like the house is still a problem, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But this, this would, this is, you know, I'm always looking for what's the path. How could we potentially get it done? It's not easy, right? There's no sure things at all. But like, you know, it's possible that Joe Biden could get a lot of his jobs and family plans through, um, not all of it, but a lot of it, hopefully, through. It's possible, right? Uh, on a party line vote through reconciliation. People are largely thrilled with the agenda that Biden has enacted. We managed to keep the House, which I actually think is a, is a harder prospect than, than keeping the Senate, increase the Senate majority by one or two votes. Yes. No, I mean, this is my dream. Right. I'm not saying that this is like going to happen, but this is this is the straight, you know, and, and then potentially, you know, this is your your way up the middle. Right. You manage to then get a little bit of breathing room on something like the For the People Act or, you know, the George Floyd Justice Act or, you know, any one of these D.C. statehood, any one of these like super important things that we need to get done that that looks like we can't get done through reconciliation. Right. 
This is the way that he could become a completely transformative president. Now, I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but people are so fixated on we need to remove the filibuster right now. We need, you know, we need to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. What we need them to do right now is to help Joe Biden pass this historic jobs and families plan, these, this, this really like monumental shift in, in the economic playing field to, to reward work, as, as Biden says, instead of wealth. And then maybe, maybe we get a chance to do something really big in the second half of Biden's term. So I, I have to ask you, because I think you have a much better take on this, whether what you think the chances are where we are in the house. Like, I, I really think that that is the, the tougher sell at the moment. The house is quite interesting because we actually don't know. We don't know what the districts will look like because of redistricting, because of reapportionment, we're going to have brand new districts everywhere, uh, except the single, you know, single seat like Vermont and yeah. Wyoming. But the, 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 the but Republicans didn't pick up quite as many seats as we thought they might in the redistricting process. Right. I mean, we thought that based on the census that they were going to pick up more, especially, especially in Texas and Arizona and Florida. Yeah, you can't. It's actually hard. It's it's actually much more complicated than that, because a lot of that depends on how the districts are drawn, who draws the districts. No, but so, I just mean the census data. I just no, mean the I know, census but data. Just because Texas gets, let's say they got they got two new seats, but they let's yeah. say they got three. It doesn't automatically mean three new Republican seats. No, I, I, I understand that. Right. No, but look, look, if, if, if they had gotten three new Republican seats, they could have drawn one seat that they knew was going to where all the Democratic votes would sink into. And then they probably could have fashioned two so that they come you know, that were that were Republican leaning and th- so that they come out one ahead. Right. But instead, they just got two. So now they have competitive in Texas. We're talking about. Yeah. So now they have more competition. Right. I just and don't think they definitely. came out as favorably from the census data as they thought they would. Yeah, Republicans. Um, probably. Right. Correct. And they have an advantage in who draws the districts. Right. So they'll draw 36 percent of the districts. Democrats only draw like 18 percent of the districts. And then the rest is it's is uh, nonpartisan sort of systems in place. So. There's a big question mark about how these districts are drawn. Then there's actually decisions that Republicans need to, need to make in places like Texas, where they can guarantee they can draw fewer really red states to lock in you know, a certain majority, or they can take a few districts and make them like you know, middle you know, pink so that they're likely to win. But but are actually potentially competitive down the line, which is what happened in the 2010 map, where the current map is actually very, very competitive. We lost an opportunity that in 2020 because that massive Trump vote. But um, that map is actually because those suburbs, which they considered to be solid Republican districts, suddenly became very purpley. So right. they have to make a decision. Do we want to do we want to try to get as many seats as possible and potentially lose a few of those in a bad year? Or do we just want to like lock in a bunch of 60, 70 percent Republican districts, which means that we'll have fewer at any given time, but we're not losing. That's like locked in. Right. So they have to make some decisions like that. And the big question, though, and this is where I, I suspect that Republicans who are drawing districts are going to be really, really flummoxed 
is do you draw those districts based on the Trump turnout of 2020 or do you draw them on the 2018 no Trump turnout? And that has huge implications, right? Because they have to, we don't know if that Trump turnout will turn out. It didn't turn out to as great of an extent in Georgia as liberals did. So in the end, even if they draw maps that are favorable to them, a lot is going to depend on who turns out. So they have an edge, no doubt about it. At this point, I would say they have maybe, you know, they have a better than even ch chance of retaking the, the House, not just because of redistricting, but because of historical trends where the party in power always loses seats in a big way in the first midterm of their presidency. And, you know, I think except, it averages like 35 points, the 35 seats. Yes, but yeah, except, you know, except? in cases like, except in cases, right, where there's, uh, there, where there is some sort of big crisis type thing like FDR. I know that we gained seats after, uh, you know, after FDR uh, it took over as president. I don't think the first midterm he ended up gaining later because, you, you know, he won four times. Oh, is it later? Sorry. Yeah. George Bush is the exception in 2002 after 9-11. So a year after 9-11, Republicans gained seats because they painted Democrats as being weak, even right. though Trump's the one who ignored the, the, the intelligence report on bin Laden. They were able to blame uh, they were able to blame Democrats. So. There is a lot in question, and there's just a general mayhem of the conservative movement right now. And it, right. it's if you really look at everything Donald Trump has touched, it's been chaotic, right? His biz businesses go out of business and are bankrupted. His campaigns are a freaking mess. Uh, he lost his reelection. I mean, he, he does not. Look what he did to Georgia. Look what he did to Georgia. I mean, Georgia's just in the Georgia runoffs, right? Everybody was like, well, historically in special elections, Republicans always win yep. them. Well, he just turned that whole thing into just a massive piece of chaos between going after the state election officials and, you know, and and uh, both of the senators tried to be little Trump mini me's, both GOP senators. And it didn't matter because he was telling all of he was telling all of his people that the vote was rigged and that the election system was crap and that they couldn't trust it. And guess who didn't turn out his people. I mean, yeah, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene's district had the biggest drop off, which is the most yeah. conservative district. And it, I mean, this this is very much system wide in the Republican Party. For example, the Florida, Florida Republicans, they control government, just passed a Georgia style bill to limit mail voting in the state. Now, you know, what's the funny thing is, Carrie, is that the people who use mail voting in Florida are seniors, in fact, Republicans pioneered, seniors. <laughs> yes, they yes. pioneered the use of mail voting to make it easier for their voters to vote. Yeah, they spent and, decades, decades pushing mail in voting. Republican yeah, training Party in these Florida. Right. That, that their ballot was going to show up, that they didn't need to do anything. That ballot was coming and made it part of it's just muscle muscle memory. And in fact, I people, you know, I saw an article, I think Florida Sentinel that said people are like, yeah, there's all these elections. I just wouldn't vote. But the ballot shows up. So why not? Right. Which actually it's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, right. Even even if it's Republicans voting, I think everybody should get that ballot mailed to them. They just killed that because Trump has decided that mail voting cost him the election. He won Florida. Mail voting did not hurt him in Florida. 
but because they created this culture where male voting is the enemy, they are literally destroying it in places where it is their advantage. Right. So there is so much where they've spent and where they've spent decades cultivating it in Florida in particular. I mean, now we have we have a we have key House, Senate and governor races in Florida next year. And so we'll, we'll get a test of how much they've damaged their own chances. But what it does mean is that Donald Trump has taken over a party and he's doing to it what he's done to everything else. Now, he still has that special ability to define narratives to get people to follow him, even though he's a loser, it, it's it's quite right. impressive. Right, but, but is he's it going a little to be less in- dominant. He's a little less dominant than he was. He is. He's as powerful as the Republican Party lets him be, and for whatever right. reason, they're letting him be. Well, and I and I think that all of them. I actually think in his absence, what's happened is they've all had to become him in order to keep. It you know, in order to keep his people sort of engaged, right? Because he's not on Twitter saying something like every day that's just blasphemous, that is, you know, fans love and whatever. So like everybody has gone more right, including the state parties, including, you know, Kevin McCarthy, including including Mitch McConnell, frankly, like the whole party has gone, you know, going after corporations and stuff like that. This is Yeah, it's not even going right. It's, it's not even just, going right. No, it's, it's they're going to, what, to whatever Donald Trump is momentarily obsessed with. Right. So let, let me just I, I know we're getting to the end here. Um, we have a few more minutes, but I just but don't want to leave this conversation without saying whatever the historical trends are, we are in a historical times. Republicans are doing a bunch of stuff trying to suppress the vote and and specifically targeted racist stuff, trying to suppress the vote of people of color, of also of young voters and of uh, Democrats more generally. Right. But it's not like they're doing it smartly, which is Florida is the exact case example of they just, you know, all of a sudden there's this fervor to do, you know, change the laws and they actually totally sabotage something that they've been relying on for decades to win very close elections in that state. So we have no idea. The other thing is, is what you brought up. They're going to, you know, they're going to have this advantage in redrawing districts for sure. But we don't even know who the GOP base is anymore. Republicans don't know who the GOP base is anymore. And they're so badly running around, chasing their trails, trying to keep those voters, those Trump voters engaged with no guarantee that they're going to turn out because they typically haven't turned out when Trump hasn't been on the ballot. And at the same time, the further like fringe they get, they're trading. They've been trading up very reliable suburban voters who go to the polls in special elections. So they've been like, I just I, it is so far outside of anything we've ever seen that I don't think anyone knows and no one will know until it happens what is going to happen in the midterms. It is possible that Democrats could keep, you know, the chambers of Congress and it is possible that they could lose both. And we just don't know. Yeah. History said that Donald Trump was going to be reelected because presidents are almost always reelected. Right. History can be a guide. History is not determinative of the future. And like you said, there, the pieces are there for us to hold on. The pieces are there to expand our lead in the Senate or lose it. But they're there to, to get a bigger, safer 
majority, one that would eliminate the filibuster. The pieces are there to win the House. And so it is going to be incumbent of us as progressives to stay engaged as we did in Georgia, when all history said our people are not going to turn out. That's what history said. History, history was right about history. And we overcame those trends and said it's not determinative. So Georgia winning the presidency, we can do it. The midterm elections during the Trump years. So I'm actually pretty excited about next year. I'm excited at the promise of giving Biden, who has proven to be an inc- trans- you know, a potentially transformative president. He's only limited to by what Congress will allow him to do. That's critical. And so we need to fight as hard as we can because they're going to be fighting as hard as they can to hand, to to you know kneecap them. I mean that's that's their job. That's what Republicans do, and they're going to do what Republicans do. We if we turn out, I actually have really really high hopes for us. So, Carrie, thank you so much, everybody. I hope you found this to be an informative conversation. I'm actually really 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 fascinated by both these topics and. Definitely read Daily Coast. You can you can see what Kerry and other great Daily Coast writers are writing about, tracking the administration, tracking the the travails of the Republican Party. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks to Walter for producing the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.